Hello, future podcast listeners. Greg Gunn here. Today, we are sharing a clip from another podcast. It's called Finding Founders, and it's all about highlighting the entrepreneurial spirits here in Los Angeles. The clip you're about to hear features Chris Doe sharing his origin story and his path from refugee to business owner. I think you're really going to like it. Enjoy. I think we all need somebody out there who kind of is relatable to us, who's doing the thing that we thought we couldn't do that we were told never to do or think about. And at this point, I'm like 15 years out of school. I'd been teaching for 10 years at that point and I continue to teach. And I'm thinking there's a new model that's emerging. Maybe I can make it work. This is Finding Founders, a podcast showcasing the vibrant entrepreneurial spirit of Los Angeles and our journey to find the founders responsible. I'm Samuel Donner, and today we're talking to Chris Doe, founder and CEO of The Future. It may seem a touch presumptive of Chris to name himself CEO of your future, but for so many, Chris may have at least some claim to that title. The Future is an online education platform dedicated to the mission of teaching 1 billion people how to be successful in a career they love. Chris sits at the nexus of the right and left brain. He employs his creativity, but also his ability to lead and organize. His ability to embody both sides of his brain shouldn't come as much of a surprise. He has spent his whole life at the schism between ideologies, struggling to find a place where he fit in. To chart Chris's journey of self-discovery, we need to go way back to his tumultuous early childhood and family roots in Vietnam. So at the beginning, all I knew was America because I came here when I was three years old and I knew that we came from another place. I could tell because all our cultures and customs were very different and I knew we didn't belong. I just didn't know that story. What what was it like before the war? Uh, my uncle and my mom worked in the embassy. My mom worked as a secretary or assistant to somebody. But there was a slow and steady creep of communism and the clash of ideas. You know, a civil war got tear a country apart and it did exactly that and worse. There's a date that stands out. It's April 30th, 1975, and that was the collapse and fall of Saigon. Saigon was now encircled and South Vietnamese troops could not move out more than 10 miles along any road. Beyond that, the communists were waiting. Outside the American so that was a very harrowing day for both my parents, and because the U.S. government uh, kept telling them, like, we'll let you know, we'll let you know, and then the morning of, it happened. They were withdrawing, and it was very immediate, and all the planning that I had put in place had fallen apart. Uh, my parents... They're, they're hearing, uh, they tell me gunfire, mortar shells, explosions happening in the background. They know the U.S. is pulling out. They were given instructions to meet at a hotel or a certain place. And my, my dad, uh, in that moment, comes home. He's, looks at, he's looking for everybody, and everybody's gone out of the house. And he's hoping, okay, it's because my uncle or somebody else had got the kids and had taken them to wherever they're supposed to be. So he's gathering up the rest of my mom's siblings and trying to get out. And they go to the hotel 
and as they approach the hotel, they can see there's a mob outside the hotel with military people on the roof with guns and people out front saying, if you pass this line, we were forced to shoot you. So apparently word had gotten out that this is where you're supposed to go for people who weren't connected to the embassy or the military, and they swarmed it, so making it impossible to go there. My dad had to siphon gas off a car. I think he had a, had a hot wire Jeep or something. He had to bribe a guard at a gate so that he can climb over the wall. It was a crazy, crazy day of many very important decisions being made, made both by my mom and dad to get us out of the country or get them out of the country at that point in time. To survive the aftermath of America's broken promise, there was no choice but to be brave and resourceful. Chris has limited memory of their trials in Vietnam as he spent his formative years under vastly different circumstances. Life in the U.S. would be worlds away, physically and culturally, from that of his parents. Like so many refugees before, Chris and his family found it difficult adjusting to a new life. All Chris wanted to do was fit in. All the while, he grew more distant from his parents and the world that they knew. Yeah, my dad and mom are the older siblings, not the oldest uh, of their many siblings. And every uncle or aunt had a different philosophy about how to do how to deal with this uh, preservation of our culture. It wasn't so much that they wanted to be disconnected from Vietnam, but disconnected from the communists. They've lost their country, their way of life, everything. If you can imagine, they've lost it all. And so once we arrived in initially in Kansas City, Missouri, and then ultimately in San Jose, California, I, I was just like trying to figure it out. And I'm embarrassed to say this, but I, I had no image or idea of what Vietnam was like. And I wasn't even that curious. And so the seeds for an identity crisis were sown. Chris was just as disconnected from Vietnamese culture as his parents were from American culture. Both Chris and his family were caught in a cultural limbo between two nations, to neither of which they completely belonged. For a really long time, I've struggled with feeling that I belong somewhere. I mean, we left our country and every, I think, year and a half we had moved or I changed schools. So getting a sense of belonging somewhere, that, that was just not an option. Boys have a certain code, a certain way of being, and especially then being macho and tough, and I was none of those things. I dreamt about arts and, and creativity, and it's just I never fit in. So as you can imagine, I got into a lot of fights. I remember in first grade, uh, there was a girl, her name was Becky, and a Caucasian girl, she had freckles, and we were friends. I liked her a lot, and I think I had a crush on her. And then the next day, my mom tells me we're moving, and I was like, oh, God, it's just, it just, it isn't, I mean, you know, as a child, you're like, this is not fair, this is not right. And you just keep doing that time and time again. So I would make friends with somebody, feel like I belong, and then it's just the rug would get pulled out. And what was happening behind the scenes was my parents were moving up the chain. Uh, my dad, he's a very bright man, and he's a hardworking person, so he moved us up the socioeconomic ladder, and of course we moved from neighborhood to neighborhood. Chris was a delicate kid, stuck in a world of tough kids. He floated on the outskirts of the social circles, unable to form close connections to his peers. His daydreams of art became his singular but constant companion. 
even if he could find others who shared his desire to create rather than dominate, he never really stood a chance. By the time he had forged a connection, the Doe family was off to a new home. A growing attachment? A burgeoning crush on a classmate? Too bad. It's gone as quickly as it came. Chris's cultural cognitive dissonance and iterant lifestyle made it near impossible for him to find his place in his people. But in time, it would come. All he needed was an initial spark. And I remember lots of times uh, just looking for a piece of paper to draw on or to do something with was a challenge sometimes. It wasn't like I can go into the pantry or the closet and pull out all these art supplies, crafts, things that I could do. And so I was living in his house with probably six or seven uncles and aunts. It was just jam-packed. And I remember I wanted to make something like a boat or something on a paper. And I asked my grandma, is there glue? And she's like, we don't have glue here. So I remember like going and getting old rice and trying to gum it up and just making it tacky enough to stick together. Chris's first foray into the art world were scraps of paper glued together with rice. But let's think about how his paper boat augurs his success. Paper was hard to come by in the Doe household. Nonetheless, he got his hands on some. He couldn't turn to YouTube tutorials to help him build a boat, and his parents couldn't teach him either. They were too busy at work. Nonetheless, he figured it out. Chris was a resourceful kid. The product was the vertex of two concepts that would come to define Chris's work, function and style. Chris wasn't just passing the time, he was expressing himself artistically while simultaneously creating a working, floating boat. Those around him soon started to take interest in his work, propelling him deeper into the world of art. So later on in life, I think my mom, she's a very observant person. And whenever we'd go to the fairgrounds, she always saw that I was stuck. I was stuck at a couple of places. Uh, one was where they drew caricatures of people. I was just fascinated by how they translated the essence of somebody onto this thing. And their lines were so perfect, there was no room for mistakes. And the other place was uh, when they would airbrush her name with a sunset or a rose or something like that. And again, the skill, the, the flourishes that they, they would add to it were just amazing. This is now, I think, in high school at this point. And my mom I had come home one day, like on the weekend, I think she went to a garage sale, saw an air compressor and an airbrush, and she just bought it for me. And I was just shocked. It wasn't my birthday. It wasn't a holiday. It wasn't nothing. She just brought it home very unceremoniously and just gave it to me, thinking like I knew what to do with this thing. She saw that I was looking at them. She made that connection. She had no idea what I needed. She saw it, probably good price, and gave it to me. My mom shockingly came into my room one night and she opens the door and there's just a cloud of paint vapors all around me. And I was just in it with my mask and just practicing all the time. This is what I wanted to do. So when you say this is what you wanted to do, how did you view art when you were younger, when you were looking at those people in the fairgrounds, I, I can't imagine that coming from immigrant parents, that you were like, this is something I could do professionally. 
I looked at them with amusement and curiosity, like who are these strange creatures who are doing these things? But it wasn't something that I would ever consider as a profession because at that point in time, I'd never met or even heard of anybody being a professional artist. It wasn't like we were taking tours of museums and talking about Mark Rothko or Motherwell or Warhol. We weren't doing any of that. It's like, I don't know what that is. Although fairground character artists occupy only a small corner of the art world, Chris immediately recognized them as his people. They were creators getting by on their creations. Finally, Chris had a small glimpse of the community he had been searching for while he was bouncing unhappily around from neighborhood to neighborhood. But he still couldn't see this as a career. Although the fairgrounds artists were his people, they weren't a representation of success. Chris still viewed art as nothing but a hobby. Regardless, he invested time in honing the craft. As Chris's work improved, he found himself taking massive strides towards self-discovery. However, not all this exploration led to greener pastures. He started to explore the dark corners of his mind through his art. I was doing these kind of surrealistic kinds of illustrations. One of them was a person who was sitting in a chair that you couldn't see and you could just see the chair and then the chair would cast a shadow and you would see the person there. Those are the kinds of things I would do. Just, it was very much like in my head, like as an art nerd kid thinking dark thoughts, you know, like people seeing through you, like you're not here, you don't exist. I thought about death a lot. I don't know why. It was just a dark place, just trying to feel something. And the more I tried to create what I was feeling inside this hole that was in my gut, the more I felt it. So I felt like alive and real. If a person sits in a chair and there's no one there to see him, is he really there? Did he ever find a place to settle down and take a seat to be comfortable? Or is he just a hovering interior with nothing to ground him or signal to others that he exists? Chris had always grappled with the dark thoughts of not belonging, but art provided him the language to articulate them and tease them out. He was desperately trying to make sense of it all. Chris, the invisible man, was about to be filled in with some color and perspective. Still, his family grew increasingly supportive, supplying him with the resources to cultivate his passion. With each day that passed, Chris honed his artistic abilities, and he would soon be recognized for his work. My instructor said, hey, you should submit this piece. And I was like, this thing? Okay, you submit it. And they're like, you won first prize. And I'm like, well, what does that give me? It gets me a ribbon and then a $200 certificate for the art store. I was like, that's cool, I'll get more art supplies. Did that, I brought that home. And my brother's like, wow, that's really cool. You ever think about doing something with this? And I'm like, nah, it's just what I do. So the two people, thankfully, in my life who were paying attention to me was my mom, who would encourage me to enter these contests or sneak some supplies under the door, if you will, and my older brother, who was really paying attention to this because he saw something here. And, and I have to kind of keep this in context because my parents did not grow up here. 
this idea of art and design is the farthest thing away from what they want for their children. So slightly encouraging, but not like full throated, like go do this thing. And my brother, he's super cool because now he's four years older, he's in college and he's trying to help me out as much as he can. Chris was determined to prove to himself that he could find both success and recognition through his art. The barrier to entry, his family. Chris's siblings and cousins excelled academically, receiving academic accolades that the family's older generations would hold up with pride. First place award in hand, Chris finally had something to show for his work. It was like getting an A+. Awards were important ammunition for Chris to get his family on board. However, on a personal level, certificates stuck to the fridge just didn't mean that much to Chris. Early on, he focused on the legitimization through monetization. Chris wanted to be paid for his work. He craved the chance to wed the art of the hustle with his artistic talent. This hustle combined with his body of work carried him to his first design job. I wanted to do something so I would be noticeable, recognizable, something that people are like, wow, he has a skill. And then I meet a uh, friend, his name is Danny, and Danny had this shirt on for this modern rock band. I was like, where'd you get that? And he's like, I made it. I was like, like, what do you mean you made it? Tell me, and he wouldn't tell me anything. There was already this seed that's being planted in my mind because I looked at art as a way to stand out and also potentially to make money. So I wanted to be my own man. I wanted to make my own money. So I saw this as an opportunity to apply art to make something that somebody else would find valuable. And I'm drawing and, and people are noticing. And so I get these little assignments and requests from my friends. They ask me to do illustrations, so I do this. Word gets around that I do art. My brother, who's a year younger than me, his wrestling coach is like, hey, I, I hear that your brother does art. He goes, yeah. He's like, would he like to work at my friend's place? They do sales screening. So this is like my first real, real art job interview. So I put a couple of pieces together. I was more concerned, like, do I have the qualifications to come and work for this guy or not? So I do put those pieces together, just a few things. I don't have a portfolio. I don't even know what a portfolio is. So I'd come in there thinking, do I have a shot here? Brad Shaboya looks through a couple of things like, yeah, uh, you're hired. How much money do you want to make? I'm like, I don't know. It's like, how about I pay you 18 bucks an hour? And my mind is just like, Pfft. So I said, what do I need to do? He said, you just ink over my drawings. When do I start? He's like, right now, I'm going to go home. Here's the pencil drawing. I'll show you. And he, he laid acetate over it. He starts inking over it with his rapidiograph pen. He starts drawing in there. And I'm like, wow, that looks really easy. And he said, if you mess up, don't worry. Just use an exacto knife, scrape it off. And that's all you need to do. He made it look super easy. So he leaves, I sit down, pull out the pen and the pen, for whatever reason, it doesn't work in my hand. The lines aren't smooth and it's like not even. And the way he just did it, like one, two strokes, done. I'm doing it, it looks jank. Money is a bit of a dirty word in the art world. The refrain goes, it sullies the artist's work, lures them to sell out, and cheapens the art. But for Chris, money is a quintessential metric. By putting a dollar amount on the hustle, Chris has a quantitative measurement to judge his own art by. I think this allowed him to achieve success in the eyes of his family. He looked for a way to fulfill his longing to be an artist while fulfilling the obligations of an immigrant household. 
money spoke to Chris's family in a way that he couldn't. It said, hey, I'm not a doctor, lawyer, or an engineer, but I am successful. With that, Brad took a chance on him. Chris had found an entry into the art community, something he'd been searching for since childhood. Brad served as a mentor, showing Chris the potential that exists within the life of an artist. But the thing that sold me on design as the option versus becoming an engineer, doctor, or lawyer is that Brad had sent me to do an errand for him. He, he's like, go pick up some artwork from Dean, Dean Walker. I pull up and I knock on the door. And Dean opens it and I'm like, hey, Brad told me to come by and pick up some artwork. He's like, come on in. And he hooks right and he walks into his home office I step through this thing and it's just this magical place. And I had not known the word graphic designer because I didn't even know what Brad did. All I knew is he owned a business and he was drawing and making t-shirts. Dean, on the other hand, had a Mac talk. Hello, future podcast listeners. Greg Gunn here. Today, we are sharing a clip from another podcast. It's called Finding Founders, and it's all about highlighting the entrepreneurial spirits here in Los Angeles. The clip you're about to hear features Chris Doe sharing his origin story and his path from refugee to business owner. I think you're really going to like it. Enjoy. I think we all need somebody out there who kind of is relatable to us, who's doing the thing that we thought we couldn't do that we were told never to do or think about. And at this point, I'm like 15 years out of school. I'd been teaching for 10 years at that point, and I continue to teach. And I'm thinking, there's a new model that's emerging. Maybe I can make it work. This is Finding Founders, a podcast showcasing the vibrant entrepreneurial spirit of Los Angeles and our journey to find the founders responsible. I'm Samuel Donner, and today we're talking to Chris Doe, founder and CEO of The Future. It may seem a touch presumptive of Chris to name himself CEO of your future, but for so many, Chris may have at least some claim to that title. The Future is an online education platform dedicated to the mission of teaching 1 billion people how to be successful in a career they love. Chris sits at the nexus of the right and left brain. He employs his creativity, but also his ability to lead and organize. His ability to embody both sides of his brain shouldn't come as much of a surprise. He has spent his whole life at the schism between ideologies, struggling to find a place where he fit in. To chart Chris's journey of self-discovery, we need to go way back to his tumultuous early childhood and family roots in Vietnam. So at the beginning, all I knew was America because I came here when I was three years old and I knew that we came from another place. I could tell because all our cultures and customs were very different and I knew we didn't belong. I just didn't know that story. What, what was it like before the war? Uh, my uncle and my mom worked in the embassy. My mom worked as a secretary or assistant to somebody. But there was a slow and steady creep of communism and the clash of ideas. You know, a civil war, tear a country apart, and they did exactly that and worse. 
There's a date that stands out. It's April 30th, 1975, and that was the collapse and fall of Saigon. Saigon was now encircled, and South Vietnamese troops could not move out more than 10 miles along any road. Beyond that, the communists were waiting. Outside the American so that was a very harrowing day for both my parents, and because the U.S. government uh, kept telling them, like, we'll let you know, we'll let you know, and then the morning of, it happened. They were withdrawing, and it was very immediate, and all the planning that I had put in place had fallen apart. Uh, my parents, they're, they're hearing, uh, they tell me gunfire, mortar shells, explosions happening in the background. They know the U.S. is pulling out. They were given instructions to meet at a hotel or a certain place. And my, my dad, uh, in that moment, comes home. He's, looks, he's looking for everybody, and everybody's gone out of the house. And he's hoping, okay, it's because my uncle or somebody else had got the kids and had taken them to wherever they're supposed to be. So he's gathering up the rest of my mom's siblings and trying to get out. And they go to the hotel, and as they approach the hotel, they can see there's a mob outside the hotel with military people on the roof with guns and people out front saying, if you pass this line, we were forced to shoot you. So apparently word had gotten out that this is where you're supposed to go for people who weren't connected to the embassy or the military and they swarmed it, so making it impossible to go there. My dad had to siphon gas off a car. He had a, had a hot-wired Jeep or something. He had to bribe a guard at a gate so that he can climb over the wall. It was a crazy, crazy day of many very important decisions being made, made both by my mom and dad to get us out of the country or get them out of the country at that point in time. To survive the aftermath of America's broken promise, there was no choice but to be brave and resourceful. Chris has limited memory of their trials in Vietnam as he spent his formative years under vastly different circumstances. Life in the US would be worlds away, physically and culturally, from that of his parents. Like so many refugees before, Chris and his family found it difficult adjusting to a new life. All Chris wanted to do was fit in. All the while, he grew more distant from his parents and the world that they knew. Yeah, my dad and mom are the older siblings, not the oldest uh, of their many siblings. And every uncle or aunt had a different philosophy about how to, do, how to deal with this uh, preservation of our culture. It wasn't so much that they wanted to be disconnected from Vietnam, but disconnected from the communists. They've lost their country, their way of life, everything. If you can imagine, they've lost it all. And so once we arrived in initially in Kansas City, Missouri, and then ultimately in San Jose, California, I, I was just like trying to figure it out. And I'm embarrassed to say this, but I, I had no image or idea of what Vietnam was like. And I wasn't even that curious. And so the seeds for an identity crisis were sown. Chris was just as disconnected from Vietnamese culture as his parents were from American culture. Both Chris and his family were caught in a cultural limbo between two nations, to neither of which they completely belonged. For a really long time, I've struggled with feeling that I belong somewhere. I mean, we left our country and every, I think year and a half we had moved or I changed schools. So getting a sense of belonging somewhere, that, that was just not an option. Boys have a certain code a certain way of being, and especially then, being macho and tough, and I was none of those things. 
I dreamt about arts and, and creativity and it's just I never fit in. So as you can imagine, I got into a lot of fights. I remember in first grade, uh, there was a girl, her name was Becky and a Caucasian girl. She had freckles and we were friends. I liked her a lot and I think I had a crush on her. And then the next day my mom tells me we're moving and I was like, oh God, it's just, it's just it isn't, I mean, you know, as a child, you're like, this is not fair, this is not right. And you just keep doing that time and time again. So I would make friends with somebody, feel like I belong, and then it's just the rug would get pulled out. And what was happening behind the scenes was my parents were moving up the chain. Uh, my dad, he's a very bright man, and he's a hardworking person, so he moved us up the socioeconomic ladder, and of course we moved from neighborhood to neighborhood. Chris was a delicate kid, stuck in a world of tough kids. He floated on the outskirts of the social circles, unable to form close connections to his peers. His daydreams of art became his singular but constant companion. Even if he could find others who shared his desire to create rather than dominate, he never really stood a chance. By the time he had forged a connection, the Doe family was off to a new home. A growing attachment, a burgeoning crush on a classmate, too bad. It's gone as quickly as it came. Chris's cultural cognitive dissonance and iterant lifestyle made it near impossible for him to find his place in his people. But in time, it would come. All he needed was an initial spark. And I remember lots of times uh, just looking for a piece of paper to draw on or to do something with was a challenge sometimes. It wasn't like I can go into the pantry or the closet and pull out all these art supplies, crafts, things that I could do. And so I was living in his house with probably six or seven uncles and aunts. It was just jam-packed. And I remember I wanted to make something like a boat or something out of paper. And I asked my grandma, is there glue? And she's like, we don't have glue here. So I remember like going and getting old rice and trying to gum it up and just making it tacky enough to stick together. Chris's first foray into the art world were scraps of paper glued together with rice. But let's think about how his paper boat augurs his success. Paper was hard to come by in the Doe household. Nonetheless, he got his hands on some. He couldn't turn to YouTube tutorials to help him build a boat, and his parents couldn't teach him either. They were too busy at work. Nonetheless, he figured it out. Chris was a resourceful kid. The product was the vertex of two concepts that would come to define Chris's work, function and style. Chris wasn't just passing the time, he was expressing himself artistically while simultaneously creating a working, floating boat. Those around him soon started to take interest in his work, propelling him deeper into the world of art. So later on in life, I think my mom, she's a very observant person. And whenever we'd go to the fairgrounds, she always saw that I was stuck. I was stuck at a couple of places. Uh, one was where they drew caricatures of people. I was just fascinated by how they translated the essence of somebody onto this thing. And their lines were so perfect, there was no room for mistakes. And the other place was uh, when they would airbrush her name with a sunset or a rose or something like that. And again, the skill and the flourishes that they, they would add to it were just amazing. Mm -hmm. 
this is now I think in high school at this point and my mom I had come home one day like on the weekend I think she went to a garage sale saw an air compressor and an airbrush and she just bought it for me and I was just shocked it wasn't my birthday it wasn't a holiday it wasn't nothing she just brought it home very unceremoniously and just gave it to me thinking like I knew what to do with this thing she saw that I was looking at them she made that connection she had no idea what I needed she saw it probably good price and gave it to me my mom shockingly came into my room one night and she opens the door and there's just a cloud of paint vapors all around me and I was just in it with my mask and just practicing all the time this is what I wanted to do so when you say this is what you wanted to do how did you view art when you were younger, when you were looking at those people in the fairgrounds, I, I can't imagine that coming from immigrant parents, you were like, this is something I could do professionally. I looked at them with amusement and curiosity, like who are these strange creatures who are doing these things? But it wasn't something that I would ever consider as a profession, because at that point in time, I'd never met or even heard of anybody being a professional artist. It wasn't like we were taking tours of museums and talking about Mark Rothko or Motherwell or Warhol. We weren't doing any of that. It's like, I don't know what that is. Although fairground character artists occupy only a small corner of the art world, Chris immediately recognized them as his people. They were creators getting by on their creations. Finally, Chris had a small glimpse of the community he had been searching for while he was bouncing unhappily around from neighborhood to neighborhood. But he still couldn't see this as a career. Although the fairgrounds artists were his people, they weren't a representation of success. Chris still viewed art as nothing but a hobby. Regardless, he invested time in honing the craft. As Chris's work improved, he found himself taking massive strides towards self-discovery. However, not all this exploration led to greener pastures. He started to explore the dark corners of his mind through his art. I was doing these kind of surrealistic kinds of illustrations. One of them was a person who was sitting in a chair that you couldn't see and you could just see the chair and then the chair would cast a shadow and you would see the person there. Those are the kinds of things I would do. Just It was very much like in my head, like an art nerd kid thinking dark thoughts, you know, like people seeing through you, like you're not here, you don't exist. I thought about death a lot. I don't know why. It was just a dark place, just trying to feel something. And the more I tried to create what I was feeling inside this hole that was in my gut, the more I felt it. So I felt like alive and real. If a person sits in a chair and there's no one there to see him, is he really there? Did he ever find a place to settle down and take a seat, to be comfortable? Or is he just a hovering interior with nothing to ground him or signal to others that he exists? Chris had always grappled with the dark thoughts of not belonging, but art provided him the language to articulate them and tease them out. He was desperately trying to make sense of it all. Chris, the invisible man, was about to be filled in with some color and perspective. Still, his family grew increasingly supportive, supplying him with the resources to cultivate his passion. With each day that passed, 
Chris honed his artistic abilities, and he would soon be recognized for his work. My instructor said, hey, you should submit this piece. And I was like, this thing? Okay. You submit it, and like, you won first prize. And I'm like, well, what does that give me? It gets me a ribbon, and then a $200 certificate for the art store. I was like, that's cool. I'll get more art supplies. Did that, I brought that home, and my brother's like, wow, that's really cool. You ever think about doing something with this? And I'm like, nah just what I do. So the two people, thankfully, in my life who were paying attention to me was my mom, who would encourage me to enter these contests or sneak some supplies under the door, if you will, and my older brother, who was really paying attention to this because he saw something here. And, and I have to kind of keep this in context because my parents did not grow up here. This idea of art and design is the farthest thing away from what they want for their children. So slightly encouraging, but not like full-throated, like, go do this thing. And my brother, he's super cool because now he's four years older, he's in college, and he's trying to help me out as much as he can. Chris was determined to prove to himself that he could find both success and recognition through his art. The barrier to entry? His family. Chris's siblings and cousins excelled academically, receiving academic accolades that the family's older generations would hold up with pride. First place award in hand, Chris finally had something to show for his work. It was like getting an A+. Awards were important ammunition for Chris to get his family on board. However, on a personal level, certificates stuck to the fridge just didn't mean that much to Chris. Early on, he focused on legitimization through monetization. Chris wanted to be paid for his work. He craved the chance to wed the art of the hustle with his artistic talent. This hustle combined with his body of work carried him to his first design job. I wanted to do something so I would be noticeable, recognizable, something that people are like, wow, he has a skill. And then I meet a uh, friend, his name is Danny, and Danny had this shirt on for this modern rock band. I was like, where'd you get that? And he's like, I made it. I was like, like, what do you mean you made it? Tell me. And he wouldn't tell me anything. There was already this seed that's being planted in my mind because I looked at art as a way to stand out and also potentially to make money. So I wanted to be my own man. I wanted to make my own money. So I saw this as an opportunity to apply art to make something that somebody else would find valuable. And I'm drawing and, and people are noticing. And so I get these little assignments and requests from my friends. They ask me to do illustrations. So I do this. Word gets around that I do art. My brother, who's a year younger than me, his wrestling coach is like, hey, I, I hear that your brother does art. He goes, yeah. And he's like, would he like to work at my friend's place? They do sales screening. So this is like my first real, real art job interview. So I put a couple of pieces together. I was more concerned, like, do I have the qualifications to come and work for this guy or not? So I do put those pieces together, just a few things. I don't have a portfolio. I don't even know what a portfolio is. So I'd come in there thinking, do I have a shot here? Brad Shaboya looks through a couple of things like, yeah, uh, you're hired. How much money do you want to make? I'm like, I don't know. It's like, how about I pay you 18 bucks an hour? And my mind is just like. Pfft. So 
So I said, what do I need to do? He said, you just ink over my drawings. When do I start? He's like, right now, I'm going to go home. Here's the pencil drawing. I don't show you. And he, he laid acetate over it. He starts inking over it with his rapidograph pen. He starts drawing in there. And I'm like, wow, that looks really easy. And he's like, if you mess up, don't worry. Just use an exacto knife, scrape it off. And that's all you need to do. He made it look super easy. So he leaves, I sit down, pull out the pen and the pen, for whatever reason, it doesn't work in my hand. The lines aren't smooth and it's like not even. And the way he just did it, like one, two strokes, done. I'm doing it, let's jank. Money is a bit of a dirty word in the art world. The refrain goes, it's Sully's the artist's work lures them to sell out and cheapens the art. But for Chris, money is a quintessential metric. By putting a dollar amount on the hustle, Chris has a quantitative measurement to judge his own art by. I think this allowed him to achieve success in the eyes of his family. He looked for a way to fulfill his longing to be an artist while fulfilling the obligations of an immigrant household. Money spoke to Chris's family in a way that he couldn't it said, hey, I'm not a doctor, lawyer, or an engineer, but I am successful. With that, Brad took a chance on him. Chris had found an entry into the art community, something he'd been searching for since childhood. Brad served as a mentor, showing Chris the potential that exists within the life of an artist. But the thing that sold me on design as the option versus becoming an engineer, doctor, or lawyer, is that Brad had sent me to do an errand for him. He, he's like, go pick up some artwork from Dean, Dean Walker. I pull up and I knock on the door, and Dean opens it and I'm like, hey, Brad told me to come by and pick up some artwork. He's like, come on in. And he hooks right and he walks into his home office and I step through this thing and it's just this magical place. I had not known the word graphic designer because I didn't even know what Brad did. All I knew is he owned a business and he was drawing and making t-shirts. Dean, on the other hand, had a Macintosh computer. He had a laser printer. He had drafting tables and T-squares and colored markers neatly organized. And he had little mock-ups and packages that he was comping up for remote control cars. And he's like, give me a minute. He's finishing up what he's doing. He hits command P. This giant refrigerator machine comes to life and a tiny piece of paper comes out the top. He holds it up, he's like, yep, that's what he wants. And I was just like, Dean, this is your job? This is your profession? This is what you do? He goes, yeah. And you support your family with this? And he goes, yeah. That's when I made up my mind. This was it. I wanted to be Dean. While the character artist proved the existence of art as a profession, Dean was a leap forward towards legitimization and conventional success. This wasn't busking on the boardwalk. Dean had a lucrative business. He wanted to be whatever Dean was, but being Dean didn't fit into the prescribed path laid out by his Vietnamese family. As college approached, one question became increasingly pertinent. What do I want to do with my life? And I applied to UC San Diego, UCLA, and Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. 
while I was waiting for the notice if I got in or not, Brad asked me, Chris, what are you going to do after school, man? I said, Brad, I don't know. I just applied to a bunch of schools. And he's like, you should go to Art Center because there's a lot of cocky mother efforts just like you there. Okay, I don't know anything about it. One letter after another, open up the mailbox, boom, rejected, rejected, shows potential rejected. Okay, Greg here again. I hope you enjoyed that clip from Chris's conversation on the Finding Founders podcast. To listen to the rest of the episode, look up Finding Founders on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts from. We'll see you next time.